What do you do with skeptics? You know, you're sharing with someone, sharing about the Lord, sharing about the fact that you've put your faith in Christ and, and you, you share the gospel message with them. And then no matter what it is that you've said, no matter what it is that you continue to say, they always want more proof. I don't think there's just one single answer in regard to what it is that we're supposed to do to respond to those who are skeptical, because Jesus seemed to answer that question a number of different ways. Remember Thomas? One of his own disciples didn't happen to be there when, oh, when Jesus appeared to that inner circle of men after he'd been crucified and now he was resurrected. And Thomas refused. He refused to believe. So what did Jesus do? He appeared again and he invited Thomas to even touch his wounds. Or what about the Samaritan woman? The Samaritan woman, Jesus presents himself to her as being the Messiah, but he also presents to her a number of facts about her own life, things that he had no way of knowing, unless, of course, he was the Messiah. Jesus often offered proof to the skeptics in his midst. Uh, sometimes he, he would heal someone to back up the, the fact that he is exactly who it is that he, he said that he was. Hey, even one time, he blinded someone. Instead of healing them, remember Saul of Tarsus? Struck blind by God and given a few days to think things over. Kind of a timeout, if you will. But the one thing that is pointed to more than anything else throughout all of the New Testament, it's pointed to both before it happened and then after it happened, is the resurrection. It's the resurrection. That's the thing. The people get pointed to more often than not when they're skeptics. Jesus was pointing his own disciples to it all through his time with them. Over and over again, Jesus would tell them what was coming. He would tell them that not only was he going to die, but then he would live again. It places like Matthew chapter 16. There we read, Jesus began to point out to his disciples. He began to do it because he did it again and again and again, that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and to suffer many things from the elders, chief priests and scribes, to be killed, and then here's the thing, and to be raised on the third day. Jesus told those guys multiple times that this is what was coming. It's what he pointed to. And so it really should be no surprise to us that after Jesus had been crucified and after he was resurrected and after he ascended to heaven and his disciples began to spread the message of the gospel, what was the thing that they would point to as they would tell the world about the Savior who had come and who had died? Well, it was the resurrection that became the cornerstone of the gospel message. And it's the resurrection that our passage this morning points to. 
uh, long before the crucifixion. It's, it's in, in the context of Jesus being with his disciples and the crowds that were coming to hear him teach as he encounters a group of skeptics, those who will never have enough proof that he points them to his resurrection. Well, let's do this. Grab your Bible, open up to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. When you find that, will you do this? Will you stand for the reading of God's word? I'm going to read. You can follow along. We'll be picking up in verse 29. Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 29. Here's what Luke writes. As the crowds were increasing, he began saying, this generation is an evil generation. It demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And look, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at Jonah's preaching. And look, something greater than Jonah is here. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for time together. We thank you for the privilege of worship in your presence and of being able to open your word and to ask you to speak to us. Lord, that's what we want. We want to hear from you this morning. Speak to our hearts. Make us receptive. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. What Jesus says here in response to these skeptics, even though it's a, a somewhat veiled reference to this, uh, this Old Testament prophet Jonah, even though it's a little bit mysterious, it isn't that hard to get the point that Jesus is going after, and especially if you know the story of Jonah. If you know what happened to Jonah, you know what Jesus is referring to here. Well, let's walk through our passage. Let's take a look for ourselves, beginning in verse 29. Uh, remembering that, that Jesus is saying these things as a crowd begins to gather to hear him teach. Remember, Jesus has just healed a man. And now there are those in the crowd who are asking him to do even greater signs. Verse 29, as the crowds were increasing, he began saying, this generation is an evil generation. It demands a sign, but no signs will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. Now, as Jesus has been ministering throughout Galilee, he's been making a claim. He's been claiming that he is the Messiah. He is the one sent by God. He is, as he put it, the way and the truth and the life, and that the only way to come to the Father is to come through him. That's what Jesus has been saying, and he has been backing up this claim. 
He has been uh, backing it up by performing miracle after miracle. He's been healing the blind, the deaf, the mute, the lame. He's cleansed lepers. He's raised the dead. He's fed the multitude. He turned water into wine. He's pointed the crowds to the fact that he has been fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies of everything that the Messiah would do. And yet for some in this crowd, it wasn't enough. They wanted something more. Honestly, what they wanted was something more spectacular. But Jesus' answer to them is no. No, I will not play your game. But, but it's kind of a funny no. It's an odd kind of no. It's like a parent who says to their child, no, I will not take you to the fair because we're going to Disneyland. Here Jesus says, no, no more signs. Oh, except for this one, the sign of Jonah, the resurrection, the grandest of all, the most spectacular of all signs, uh, the coming of the Son of Man, the crucifixion of the Son of God, and the resurrection. That's going to be the only sign. Other than that, nothing. Other than that, nothing at all, Jesus says. What does he mean, though, by the sign of Jonah? I mean, maybe he, he simply means the preaching of Jonah. I don't think so, because in Matthew 12, Matthew records for us a fuller account of this conversation that Jesus had. There in Matthew 12, Jesus says it bluntly. He says, for as Jonah was in the belly of a huge fish, three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth, in the grave, three days and three nights. In a sense, Jesus is saying to these skeptics, so, you don't believe me? Okay, watch this. Watch me. Watch what I will do. I will not perform tricks to entertain you. I will not do something spectacular merely to, to impress you. But I will show you who I am. And when I have willingly given up my life, when I have surrendered my life on your behalf, I will take it up again. I will live again, Jesus says. And... Then Jesus says, the evidence for the resurrection. The resurrection itself is such solid evidence that if you won't believe it, even then history itself will rise up in judgment of you. Look at verse 31. The queen of the south. That's the queen of Sheba. Remember her? First Kings chapter 10. As she travels all the way, we think probably from Ethiopia up to the land of Israel, to the city of Jerusalem. Why? Because she had heard the stories of Solomon's great wealth and of his great wisdom. And so she travels all this way simply to see a wise, wise king. And so Jesus says, she will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. 
And look, something far greater than Solomon is here. So too, Jesus says, the men of Nineveh. The men of Nineveh, the ones to whom Jonah preached, that they too will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at Jonah's preaching. And look, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus says that, that he and his resurrection are greater proof than all of Solomon's wisdom and wealth, a greater even than Jonah's fantastic journey inside the great fish. And so those who reject the evidence of the resurrection will be condemned by the, the response of the queen of Sheba and of the men of Nineveh who were given far less proof, yet responded in far greater belief. So Jesus, when he is asked for more proof by his skeptics, he points them to the resurrection. He points them to the resurrection, and it is often to the resurrection the skeptics are pointed. A few years later, when the apostle Paul is making a case for the veracity of the Christian faith to the Christians in the city of Corinth, he too points to the resurrection because the resurrection is the cornerstone of the Christian faith. It's the linchpin of the gospel message. Will you do this turnover from Luke 11, go a little further to the back to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, a chapter that is, is dedicated to uh, the resurrection of Jesus. Here, Paul is reminding the Corinthian church of the core, uh, that the central part of the gospel message. In verse 3, he says this, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Paul says, here, here is the core. Here is the central thing. And what Paul writes next, Bible scholars read it, and they believe that it is, it is probably a, an early hymn or a creed, a, a, a statement of faith of the early church. It was something that had a set, established wording in which the church used in general to define what it is that they believed about the Christian faith. Scholars believe as well that it was a, a very early creed. This wasn't something that was developed centuries later, but this was something that, that the church had from the very beginning. Uh, Paul says that this is the same gospel. He says these things that I'm going to lay out for you, it's the very same thing that I've been preaching from the very beginning. It's what I brought you when I came to Corinth at the first. We know from Acts chapter 18, there in verses 11 and 12, which is the account of Paul's first visit to the city of Corinth, that Paul had been there for 18 months when the Jews came against him. And when they came against him, they drug him before a Roman official by the name of Gallio. And we know from history 
The Gallio was only in that region from 51 to 52 AD. And so Paul's arrival at Corinth at the beginning of that 18 months, it had to have been right around 50 AD, which means that Paul brought this particular gospel that he said he'd been bringing from the very beginning, less than 20 years after the crucifixion. And here's why we care about this. What Paul tells us here about this being the same gospel that he received at the beginning, that he brought to them at the beginning of their church, and it is the same gospel that we believe today, it it makes it very clear that the resurrection was something that the church grabbed onto and believed in from the very beginning. Do you know that there are many uh, skeptics who want to claim that the Gospels are nothing more than embellished legends, that they are exaggerated stories made up long after any true eyewitnesses had left the scene. This is a crushing blow to that argument. It just doesn't work. Uh, Both scripture and secular records show clearly that the early Christian church proclaimed the resurrection as one of the core beliefs of the Christian faith. There are numerous highly respected ancient secular unbelieving historians who recounted not only the crucifixion, but also the fact that the early church claimed that the one who had been crucified was also resurrected. Historians like Pliny the Younger and Gaius Suetonius Tranquillus. How do you like that for a name? Wow. Cornelius Tacitus. These are the heavy hitters as far as historians go for this time period. And they all record the fact, not only of the crucifixion, but of the early church's claim of the resurrection and they are unbelieving historians. And they verify that the belief in the resurrection of Jesus has been there from the very beginning. Well, here's the gospel that Paul and the rest of the early church declared from the very start. Look partway through verse three, that Christ died, that he died for our sins in accordance to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance to the scriptures and that he appeared. Jesus died and he was buried. He, He was raised and he reappeared. And it all happened just as God's word had said that it would. Says that he died and he was buried. He resurrected and he reappeared. His death and his resurrection, those were things that that happened according to the scriptures, it says. And really, theologically, it is the death and the resurrection of the Savior that are important. That is how our, our salvation by grace was purchased on our behalf. And his burial and his reappearance, those were really the things that demonstrated the reality of the death and the resurrection. It is his burial that proves that he had died and and it is his reappearance that proves that he was resurrected. 
So scripture tells us that Christ died, literally that he surrendered his life. He wasn't killed. He gave it up willingly on our behalf. But he died upon a Roman cross. But, but how do we know that he died? How do we know that he actually died? Well, we know that he actually died because he was buried. Well, what do I mean? Well, first of all, he was released from the crucifixion. Remember, this was an official government event. This was not just someone being killed by a mob, but this was an official action of the Roman government. And so there was a centurion who was in charge of the crucifixion. And one of his jobs and the most important job, you know, if you're in charge of executing someone, really the main job is to make sure they're dead right? And so that was one of his main jobs. And in fact, it was, it was a point that his employer stressed so strongly that if he ever released someone from crucifixion before they were dead, he had the privilege then of taking their place and being executed in their place. So this centurion, this centurion, his own life depended upon him ensuring that every man whose crucifixion he oversaw, that before he released the body, that he knew that that man was dead. We see that kind of carefulness in Mark chapter 15. There, after Jesus has died, we read that Joseph, one of the, the secret followers of Jesus, goes to Pilate, the Roman governor, and he asks if he can have the body. He asks for the body, and Pilate, surprised to hear that Jesus should have already died, he summons the centurion, he brings the man in, and he questions him, and he asks him, is he already dead? And when he learned from the centurion that, yes, he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. Well, how did the centurion know that he was dead? Well, that, that's not the kind of thing that if your life is on the line, you're going to take any chances with, right? And so what do we know from the Gospel of John? What did this centurion do before he released the body of Jesus? And John chapter 19, 34 tells us that he ran him through with a spear. It was not enough that he had been beaten and scourged. It was not enough that he had been crucified and died. But just to make sure, he runs him through with a spear as well. The fact that Jesus was released proves that he was truly dead. Secondly, the response of his friends, the, the way his friends responded once they received his body, this too, it, it testifies that he was dead when they received the body. As they grieved and, and some ran and hid, they, they didn't receive the body and go, hey, guys, He's alive. Let's get him to a hospital. Let's go see a doctor. This wasn't, they didn't run off with the body to then try to nurse him back to health. But rather, they took his body from the cross. They washed it. They anointed it. They wrapped it in spice-laden cloths, and they put it in a tomb. He was dead. This only makes sense if he was clearly and undoubtedly dead. His burial, 
confirms his death. His burial confirms his death, and his appearances confirm his resurrection. The disciples weren't looking for Jesus to be resurrected. They weren't hopeful, not, not in any sense. In fact, so much so when the disciples were first told that, that the Savior had risen from the grave, they just simply didn't believe it. I mean, you look at the end of Mark chapter 16. It's not a great ending. Here it says that Mary Magdalene had seen the risen Lord, so she comes to his disciples, and then look at verse 11. When they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they, they greatly rejoiced, right? No, no, and not even slightly. Very bluntly, they would not believe it. They would not. Shut up, Mary. Get out of here. What, what are you, crazy? They, they absolutely refused. They weren't quick to believe, reticent, even reluctant. It took Jesus appearing to the disciples, standing before them, speaking to them, being with them before they would believe that he was alive. Now, I don't know what Thomas was out doing that night, but it was a bad decision to be out doing it. Yeah, it, 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 there was no place he needed to be other than in that upper room with the other guys when it happened, but he was gone. And so Thomas wasn't there when Jesus appeared to the 12. And so when he comes back and they begin telling him, the master, he's alive. He came to us. Could you imagine what that was like? What kind of emotion was packaged up in their testimony to Thomas? Oh my, Thomas, where were you? You're not gonna, the master's alive. This wasn't, this wasn't just, a, oh, by the way, um, don't know if you've heard yet. This wasn't just something they sent in a text quick. You know, this was something. They probably grabbed Thomas and like shove him up against the wall and all, all, all 10 of them are in his face. You're not gonna believe this. this is so amazing, this is so amazing. And despite the passion and the, just how convinced they were, what is Thomas's response? Sorry. I don't know what got into you guys. I will not believe. I will not believe until I stick my hand in his wound. Jesus says, okay. And Jesus appears to Thomas. And Thomas sees him and he, he folds immediately and he cries out, my Lord, my God. Paul tells us that Jesus appeared to many, all of whom were then transformed by this experience. And I think that's a very key point. Look at verse five. It says that Jesus appeared to Cephas. That's, a, that's another name for Peter. So Peter, one of the disciples, then to the 12. 
to his disciples. They were all hiding. And both Peter and the other disciples, they were all transformed, right? I mean, remember the scene right after the crucifixion? They're all hiding. They're all terrified. They're confused. They're sending Mary away saying, you're nuts. There's no way that Jesus is alive. And now they're changed. Once they have seen the Savior, here is this group who is bold. And they have this laser focus on on sharing with others the fact that the Savior is risen from the dead. Verse 6, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. So it wasn't just this small group of insiders. It wasn't just two or three of the disciples getting together and saying, hey, we're going to tell everyone that we saw him and then they'll believe us. But rather, it was, it was even a larger group than the 12. There were 500 at one time. That, that, that's not a hallucination. That doesn't happen. That isn't how hallucinations work. They are individualized. You can't have a group hallucination. And it wasn't a conspiracy. You can't keep a conspiracy going with a small, tight-knit group, let alone with hundreds and hundreds of people. The most logical the most straightforward conclusion that you can reach when you look at the evidence is that Jesus Christ truly rose from the grave. That's where Paul is leading us. Paul is saying, look at the evidence. Look at the evidence. Look at what has happened. You don't believe me? You don't have to believe me. That's okay. There are so many others that you could ask. There are so many others who were there. They experienced it. They can tell you themselves about their encounter with the risen Savior. It wasn't just the followers of Christ, though, who saw the risen Lord. It wasn't just those who were insiders who were following Jesus on some level or in some way who then after the resurrection testified to its veracity. His skeptics testified to it as well. His brother James had been a skeptic. The apostle Paul, I think it would be um, kind to call him a skeptic. He was a persecutor of the early church. But we read there, verse 7, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, Paul says. Both James and Paul, and not only skeptics, but but truly uh, those who had rejected the claims of Jesus and who were opposing it. But when they encountered the risen Savior, They were changed because everything changes when you encounter the resurrected Lord. It's interesting. It's interesting that it's the resurrection that gets pointed to for those who are skeptical. But understand this. 
When scripture points to the resurrection, it isn't just an exercise in apologetics. It isn't just a, a, a thing that we go through where we examine the evidence and the preponderance of the evidence sways the moment and convinces the skeptic. But did you notice something about everyone who encountered the risen Lord? They were transformed by it. The, the whole argument for the resurrection isn't one that is just about historical fact. Now, you can make a great argument for the historical fact of the resurrection. If you look at all the historical witnesses, you, you look at the eyewitness testimony, the only thing that makes sense is that Jesus was resurrected. But that really isn't the argument that Paul is making. Paul is saying, look at the lives that are transformed. Look what has happened to those who have encountered the risen Lord. Dear friends, we worship a Savior who is alive. We do not follow a self-help philosophy. That is not the Christian gospel. It isn't just about cleaning up your act and following a set of rules and changing your life and turning over a new leaf and doing better than you did before. There is a supernatural dynamic that, that seems to be lost from much of what we would call the church today. There is an encounter with the risen Savior that is to be a part of the Christian faith. Christ didn't just rise from the grave and then disappear and abandon his church. What did he promise his disciples? I will be with you always, even unto the end of the age. Yeah, it sounds kind of like where we're at, right? He says, I will be with you. I will not leave you as orphans. Now, I'm not saying that, that each of us is going to have an encounter like Paul had on the Damascus Road where you get knocked to the ground, you're blind for three days, and then some stranger comes to heal you. I'm not saying that it's going to be like what Thomas had when you know, Jesus appears and says, okay, dude, you asked for it. Wash your hands and let's go. You know, stick your hand into my side. I'm not saying that, that, that we're going to have this, this event like they had. But we worship a God who is alive. And so we should expect to encounter him. Did you encounter him in worship this morning? I hope you did. I did. I, I had a real sense of the Lord's presence as we worshiped. There are times when, I, when I've encountered the Lord speaking to me. I was sharing with some guys uh, before service uh, that, you know, the first seven years of our marriage, I was such a knucklehead. I'm just a knucklehead now, but I was such a knucklehead. And, and and I was talking about this experience I had where I shared some counsel with someone, and I was just like, oh, man, that was really good. That was so insightful. 
that was just, wow, I was so impressed with myself. And then I hear the Lord speak to me so clearly, so clearly. See, that wasn't for him. That was for you, knucklehead. It's like, oh, okay. If our Lord is resurrected, we should expect to encounter him and to be changed by that encounter. I think that's why he points to the resurrection again and again and again. It's not just a fact in history. It is that. But it is a dynamic of the Christian faith as well. Our faith is not just this dead practice of following rules, but it is a relationship with a Savior who is risen and who is active amongst his church. He is risen, my friends. He is risen. We've got to cling to that. We've got to remember that. We've got to know that and look for his presence. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for our time together. I thank you that, that you so often meet us when we open your word and speak to us. And God, I pray that you would give us ears to hear. And Lord, that you so often make us aware of your presence with us in times of worship. And God, we long for that. And not just to, to, to have an experience, but Lord, to be changed by you. Lord, for the work of your Holy Spirit to be accomplished in our lives. God, that you would move powerfully in our midst. God, that your resurrection would not just be an item in our statement of faith, but an experience in our walk of faith. Minister to our hearts, Lord. Speak to us. Meet us here. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.